Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. God, would you open our minds and our hearts to your word? Would you, by your Holy Spirit, bring conviction to our lives? Lord, help me to speak what is true. Help me to speak what is right. And I ask you this in Jesus' name, for your sake, for your glory, for your honor. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's four verses, and I'm going to break the verses down into three parts to help us better understand them. And, and let me say simply and honestly at the onset of this talk that these are some hard verses to understand. I'm going to tell you what I think they mean. And uh, so I would challenge you if what I say doesn't sit exactly right, and you think, ah, I don't think that's really right. I really want to urge you to do some research. Get out your concordances, get out your commentaries, go to the internet, and, and study Matthew 5, 17 through 20, because not everybody's going to agree with what I believe Jesus is saying in these verses, but I want to share with you what I think Jesus was, uh, was trying to say by them. Again, since our theme is how we ought to live as the followers of Jesus, I'm going to couch each of these three points as challenges to us. And the first one is this. As followers of Jesus, we, are to be, we ought to be men and women committed to the Bible. We ought to be men and women committed to the honor, to the authority, to the truthfulness, to the uh, reliability, to the to the greatness of the Bible or the greatness of the Word of God. Now, the verses are 17 and 18. I just read them, but let me read them again. Don't think, Jesus said, that I came to abolish the law. Now, when Jesus speaks of the law in that verse, he's talking about the first five books of the Bible. Don't think I came to do away with the first five books of the Bible or the prophets. That's actually most of your Old Testament, and that was only the only Bible they had at that time. There was the, the wisdom literature, which are the, the books of uh, Psalms and Proverbs, and uh, I think Lamentations is included in that, that group, Ecclesiastes. But the bulk of the Old Testament is included in this statement, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Excuse me. Yeah, I did not come to abolish it. I did not come to abolish it, he says, but to fulfill it. For truly, I tell you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Now, there's obviously a lot of scuttlebutt going on at the time that Jesus is walking the earth. And people are saying of him that he does not hold to the first five books of the Bible. He doesn't believe them. Now, Jesus, the reason they would have said that is Jesus continually challenged their understanding of the Sabbath. I'm sure if you're familiar with your Bible at all, you will know that Jesus was, was constantly pushing back on their understanding of the Sabbath. So in John chapter 8, Jesus finds himself in front of the Pharisees with a woman who's been caught in sin. And the Pharisees say this to Jesus. They say, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now listen. Now in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such women. What then do you say? It's obvious from what the Pharisees are asking Jesus is that they believe that Jesus is going to have a different opinion 
than the books of Moses. They believe that Jesus is going to have a different opinion than what the law says, and so they're kind of putting him on the spot. Don't you love the Lord Jesus? That isn't our text, but he's able to get out of that with just a simple statement. Hey, the first one, the one of you is without sin, you throw, you throw the first stone. Okay. So here in these verses, in, on this Sermon on the Mount, I think Jesus wants to make something really clear to his followers. And he wants to make something really clear to us today. And that is this. He was committed to the Word of God. He believed the Word of God. He trusted the Word of God. He honored the Word of God. And he's saying to his followers, you are not to do away with the Word of God. You, like myself, you are to honor the Word of God. So Jesus says to them, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now, Jesus, I believe, means two things by that, that statement, and I'm going to talk about that in just a moment, but before I do, I have, to, I have to give some other background information that I think will make, help make sense of what I want to say Jesus meant by the statement, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So here, here's the background information I want to give you. The laws of God can be divided into two categories. Most of you probably know this, but maybe you don't. They can be divided into two categories. There was in the Old Testament, in the books of the law, the first five books, there was the ceremonial law of God, and there was the moral law of God. Let me take the moral law of God first. We'll start there. What was the moral law of God? The moral law of God is that which flows from his character. It is immutable. It is eternal. It is irreversible because we find the reason for the moral, God, the moral law of God in the very existence of God. These laws are a reflection of who God is. They're a reflection of His heart. They're a reflection of His character. And the truth is, all of us, all of us have that law somehow embedded in us. In Romans chapter 2, verse 13 through verse 15, the Apostle Paul wrote, For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Now remember, when he keeps saying they don't have the law, they don't have the law, he's talking about the first five books of the Bible. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, their consciences confirm this. Now, most people believe that what that means is this. Because we're made in the image of God, the law of God is imprinted upon our, upon our person. We know innately, instinctively, what the law of God is. That it's wrong to murder. That it's wrong to commit adultery. That it would be wrong to, to cheat and defraud others. I remember listening to the Modalone Indians after, after they came to Christ. They were the folks that Jim Elliott and his, uh, his four buddies went to reach there in the Venezuelan uh, jungles. You remember they were killed by the Modalone Indians. But later, uh, I think it was Rachel Saint and um, Elizabeth Elliott went in there, led them to Christ. They became followers of Jesus. The whole tribe did. Later on, the elders of the tribe, they would make the statement that we knew instinctively that it was wrong to murder those men. We knew it. We knew it in our heart. Why did they know it in their heart? Because God has imprinted his moral law upon our character because we are made in the image of God. So in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find commands that reflect the character of God. As a matter of fact, over the next few weeks, one of the things that Jesus is going to do in the Sermon on the Mount is he's going to take these commands that reflect the character of God, and he's going to go beyond just the external command and go to the very essence of how it reflects the character of God. That's what he's going to be doing. I've said this many times, so if you've heard this, you know, bear with me, but the reason why God commands us not to lie is because God 
does not lie. It's his character. The reason we're not to murder is because God is not a murderer. The reason that we are to commanded to love and the reason why we are commanded to show kindness, it, those are moral commands of God. Why, why, are we sh- why are we commanded to do that and to be that way? Because that is the heart of God. That's his character. And so the moral law of God flows from his character. And the reason you should be faithful to each other, the reason you should be faithful to God, is because God is faithful. The moral law of God is immutable. doesn't change. doesn't pass away. It's, not, it's irreversible. It's not going to go away someday, okay? So, so let me repeat. The moral law of God is for this age. It's never to go away. It'll always be. Now, the other law that the, the books of the Old Testament talk about is what we commonly refer to as the ceremonial law. Now, these laws were different. They did not flow from the character of God. Rather, they, they were ritual laws that God set up governing how we are to approach Him in worship and relationship. But here's the extraordinary thing about the ceremonial law of God. Now, listen carefully. These laws were pictures. They were pictures. They were visual aids. They were, the Bible calls them mile markers or shadows of what was to come. These, these ceremonial laws of God about how his followers were to approach him, they were, they were pointing ahead to something else that was going to have the reality. In our monthly summer family meetings on Wednesday night, we're studying the book of Colossians. And, uh, and we were talking about chapter 2, verse 17, this past Wednesday. And in that verse, the Apostle Paul says, speaking about these ceremonial laws, these are a shadow of what was to come, the substance of Christ. So the picture that the Apostle Paul is giving us is that Jesus is casting the shadow of these Old Testament ceremonial laws. So Paul would say to the Galatian believers in a letter that he would write to them, he would say, therefore the law has become our tutor. It's to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, there is no longer, uh, we are no longer under a tutor. Some of the ceremonial laws of God, the pictures that were pointing us to Christ. Now let me give you several easy to see pictures of these Old Testament ceremonial laws. One of them would be the sacrificial system. It's very, very easy to see it. In the Old Testament, God said, listen, you're going to sacrifice animals, and they're going to die for your sin. And actually, once a year, you're going to have a really big celebration, or you're going to have a big observance of this, and you're going to have what I'm going to call the Day of Atonement. And they're going to take, you're going to take, Israel's going to take a lamb, and the high priest is going to kill that lamb, take that blood of that lamb, sprinkle it on the mercy seat of God, and that's going to be a covering for your sin." Now, the Israelites did that year after year, year after year. Individual people brought sacrifices day after day after day as as a way of approaching God. Now, that was a shadow of the real thing. And the real thing, we sang about it several times this morning. And I was thinking, you know, if you happen to walk in here this morning and you don't have a church background, you, you might think the songs we sing are weird because we're singing about a lamb that's slain and his blood and all that kind of stuff. Well, what that comes from is how that Old Testament sacrificial system was a shadow that's pointing to Christ. And Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. 
And so you see all that Old Testament sacrificial system? Let's, let's talk about the Passover observance. Israel is captured by, by Egypt, and they're in captivity for 400 years. God is letting them out, the very last, or, or, or setting them free. The very last plague that he sends on Egypt is going to be the firstborn of, the de- of their children to die. And it's not just the Egyptian firstborn, but it's the Israelite firstborn as well. And so God says, to keep your firstborn from dying, here's what I want you to do. Take a lamb. Kill that lamb. Take the blood of that lamb. Put it over the doorpost of your home. And that night, when the death angel passes through, he'll pass over your home. And that's what they did. And then in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us, for Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. So see, here's here's the shadow. That lamb dying and his blood being put on the the, the real doorpost of the Jews' homes is a metaphorical shadow pointing to Christ so that when Jesus died, his blood by faith can be applied to the doorpost of our hearts. So it's a metaphor, it's a picture, it's a shadow. And on and on and on we go. The Old Testament Sabbath, for instance, was a shadow pointing to the rest that we would have in Jesus. The high priest himself was a shadow of Christ. The high priest represented the people to God. Once a year, he'd take the blood of that lamb and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. He was the only one who could go in there and do that. So Jesus comes along and the Bible says that Jesus is our ultimate high priest. And he didn't take the blood of a lamb. He took his own blood, sprinkled it on the mercy seat. And so therefore, the high priest is a picture of what Christ was going to do for us. Everybody following me? All right. So my point is this. The ceremonial law, the ceremonial law was a picture. It was a way of approaching God. And it was a picture that was pointing us to Christ. Now, put a chart up here. Let me put the chart up there for me, Gracie, will you? So here's the chart that I made, and it's just it's, it's kind of bare bones. But here's the chart. The moral law of God flows from God's character. It's immutable, eternal, universal. It's never going away. The ceremonial law of God is how we, how we are to worship. It pointed us to Jesus. It was temporary, and it was part of the first covenant. All right? So with that in mind, let's go back to Jesus. When he said to his followers there on the mountain, he said, men and women, listen. I did not come to abolish the law but I came to fulfill it. I think Jesus fulfilled the law in two ways. I think this is what he meant. Number one, Jesus meant I'm going to fulfill the moral and ceremonial law of God by living it perfectly. I'm going to perfectly fulfill the moral and ceremonial law of God. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest of the commandments? And he said, well, the greatest commandment is easy. So love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm going to give you the second one. I'm going to throw it in there. The second one's just like the first one. It's like loving your neighbor as yourself. And then he made the statement, every other law of God fits under those two laws. Every other law fits there. And Jesus lived the moral and the, and the ceremonial laws of God. He lived them perfectly. He never failed. He never dropped the ball. And the reason why that's so crucial, folks, is because Jesus became our substitute by never sinning. He became the one who didn't deserve to die. He never deserved death because death is the penalty of sin. Jesus didn't deserve that. Jesus died in our place because he was giving us his righteousness and taking our sin upon himself. Jesus lived the law of God perfectly. Here's what I want you to hear. Jesus isn't saying the law of God's not important. Jesus isn't saying, hey, I'm doing away with the law of God. It doesn't matter. No, Jesus fulfilled the law of God by living it perfectly for us, all right? 
But the second way that Jesus fulfilled the law of God is that he fulfilled the ceremonial law of God by being its completion. The ceremonial law of God was a picture. Jesus is the substance. That's what Paul says in Colossians 2.17. Jesus was the Jesus was the real thing. Everything else was just sort of a picture. It was a shadow. It was a foretelling. It was a, it was a milepost pointing us to Christ. And so when Jesus came, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, just listen. This is in chapter 10 if you're taking notes. Chapter 10, verse 11 and following. But just listen. Every priest stands daily, the author of Hebrews says, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. Year after year, he'd sacrifice that lamb, which which can never take away sins. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, us followers. For after saying, this is the covenant that I made with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. And then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And then in verse 18... Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering of sin. So one of the things that you have to to realize and you have to remember is that Jesus fulfilled the picture. And so the ceremonial law of God, it is no more. I say it categorically. I say it with conviction. The ceremonial law is no longer in effect. Jesus fulfilled it. And so it has passed away. It, it, it is no more. It pointed us to Christ, but now that Christ has come, we don't worship in the same way anymore. We don't, we don't offer sacrifices anymore because Jesus did it once and for all. We don't have high priest anymore because Jesus was and is our high priest. We don't observe the Sabbath in the same way because Jesus is our Sabbath. And on and on we could go with all the ceremonial laws of God. Jesus fulfilled them. They were a shadow. Jesus is the substance. Now let's go back to the point that Jesus is making in this application. The thing I want you to hear. Jesus loved the Bible. I call it the Bible. It was the Old Testament for them. But Jesus loved the Old Testament. I'm lumping the New Testament in with there. Or I'm clustering the New Testament in there with the Old Testament. Because it's the Word of God. And here, here, Jesus loved His Bible. He wasn't setting it aside. He wasn't saying it's not important. He wasn't saying, I don't believe it. We don't have to live by it. What he was saying was the word of God is important and I fulfilled it. I fulfilled the moral law of God by always living it. And I fulfilled the ceremonial law of God by completing it and by being its absolute substance where it was just a picture pointing us to Christ. Now here's the point I think he's trying to make to his believers, I mean to his followers and to us today, is we should believe the Word of God and we should honor the Word of God and we should seek to live the Word of God and fulfill the laws of God, the moral law of God, even as the Lord Jesus did. Now one more note before I move on. Notice what Jesus says in verse 18. He says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter, yours may say, um, the jot and tittle there, if you, if you have a King James, a New King James, may say jot or tittle, what, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. 
Now, you know, jot and tittle, that was the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The tittle was the smallest mark in the alphabet. So sort of like the smallest letter for us would be the I, and, and a tittle would be like on the Q and the O. I mean, they look exactly the same, except they have a little mark on the Q, right, that marks it differently than the O. That's kind of the tittle. And so Jesus says, nothing about the law is going to pass away until it's accomplished. Now, I just got through telling you that the moral law of God is never going to pass away. How can Jesus say, when it's all accomplished, it will pass away? Let me talk about that for just a moment. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, God God is, is quoted as saying that he's going to write the laws of God on our heart. And here's what I want you to understand. The moral law of God will never pass away, but we won't need the moral law of God ever again in the new age. You know why? Because God's going to change you. God's going to change me. He's going to do away with my sinful nature, and He's going to create in me His character. You see, the moral law of God isn't for God. I mean, grab a hold of this. It's really important. The moral law of God is not for God. God doesn't need to be told not to murder, not to lie, not to steal, not to rape. God doesn't need that. Why not? Because it's who He is. It's flowing from His character. He doesn't need to be told, don't do these things, because that is who He is. You follow me? And so there's coming a day where the moral law of God's not going to pass away in the sense that God's somehow going to change and murder's going to be okay and rape's fine and stealing's good and lying's all right. No, that's never going to happen. But you know what? When the new age comes, Jesus says, at that point it's going to pass away because, I mean, we're not going to need it anymore. Everybody following me? You're not going to need it anymore because it's going to be who you are. I don't know about you, but I'm so excited looking forward to that day. I'm so looking forward to the day I don't have to fight against the old Jimmy and I'm sealed in perfection and my character is made unto that of Jesus. I just can't wait for that. I'm looking so forward to that. Let's move on. Number two. Here's the second thing from the verses. I promise the next two points go faster. As followers of Jesus, we should obey, live the moral law of God revealed in the Bible and we should be careful to encourage others to do the same. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now notice it's not about obeying the law that gets you into heaven. He says those who who break these things, they're going to be called least in the kingdom. But whoever does, does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now we are saved by grace, by the grace of God in Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law of God for us perfectly. The law of God made it clear we need a Savior. It pointed us to Jesus. But here's what Jesus wanted his followers then to understand, and he wants you and me to understand today. We are not excused or exempted from living out the moral character of God in our lives. Uh, Just because I'm saved by grace does not exempt me from obedience to God's moral character. He wants me and expects me and calls me to be like him. And I am to live out his law. And and the person who does not do that and who teaches others to not do that will be called least in the kingdom of God. But he who does that will be called great in the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus completed the ceremonial law of God. And we don't need the ceremonial law of God. We're not under obligation to keep the ceremonial law of God. Now, if for whatever reason you want to keep the ceremonial law of God, by all means, go for it. 
I mean, you can do that. Let nobody judge you based on what you do with the ceremonial law of God, whether you keep it or whether you don't keep it. But God's moral law is eternal and absolute, and it springs from who He is, and you and I are called to obey it. Jesus lived it, and He says, I want to live it through my followers. If there's anyone in this world who ought to live the moral character of God, who is it, everybody? It's us, right? We're the ones who ought to be living the moral character of God. Let's go back to last week's talk on being salt and light. And I don't know if you remember, but I said salt and light really means just this, living the character of God in your lives. And that's what's going to salt people's hearts. It's what's going to make them thirsty to know God. It's what's going to distinguish us from the the world. We're going to be different because we're going to live, we're going to let Christ live through us, okay? Now, there's a great move in our culture to move away from God's morality. There really is. In our culture, in our, in our country, there's a great move away from it. And, and, and it seems like almost every day, Christian leader after Christian leader is standing up and saying, you know, God's moral laws don't matter anymore. I, we're, I'm embracing this. I'm embracing that. And uh, you know what? I, I think Jesus is saying to you and me, do not be one who does not obey my, my character laws, my moral law. Don't be somebody like that. Don't teach other people. You know what's really sad is you see Christian leaders, Christian leaders standing up in front of other Christians and saying, it's okay for you to abandon God's moral character. It's okay for you not to. Those were just temporal things. Those were misunderstandings of God's, of God's character when indeed they're, they're really not. Now please don't misunderstand Jesus is not calling you to be self-righteous, rude, or arrogant. As a matter of fact, the moral character of God calls you to be humble, self-sacrificing, and gracious, and kind. That's, what, that's God's moral character. See, it's not just God's moral character calls us to be faithful and holy in, in all the things that we would line up on, but it calls us to be Good and kind and gracious and good and just the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It calls us to be all of those things. But nonetheless, He's calling us to be holy. He's calling us to be holy, to obey His moral standards. And I want to say to all of you this morning, if there's, if there's something I want you to take away from this message, is I want you to hear me saying that Jesus on that mountainside and Jesus to Bacon's Castle this morning is saying, guys, don't set aside my character don't set aside my moral laws. This is how I want you to be. You're my followers. This is who I am. I lived it perfectly. Now you live for me as well. That brings us to the very last thing that Jesus said in, uh, in regard to uh, in this, in these three verses, four verses. As followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, our righteousness needs to be different than that of the Pharisees or we will not see God and we will not enter into his kingdom. Unless our righteousness is different than that of the Pharisees, we will not see God and will not enter into his kingdom. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless it surpasses, unless your righteousness surpasses that of those scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, now this one statement, I think Jesus could have meant it two different ways. I'm going to share with you both of them. You decide what you think it is. I actually think it could be, I think both of them are true. And I think Jesus actually could have meant both of them. 
But here's the first way Jesus could have meant that. He could have meant that unless our practice of righteousness be a heart thing versus an external rule thing, we will not see God. The Pharisees were notorious or they were known for their rigorous keeping of God's rules, God's moral rules and God's ceremonial rules. So, so they kept the Sabbath and, and they, they had a dozen different rules that they attached on to the Sabbath keeping so they could make sure they did it right, right? But Jesus often accused them of missing the point. He said, you don't even, you don't even get it. The Sabbath was a law that God made up for you. It was pointing you to Christ, but it was a law that God made out to bless you. And, and you've made it something that it doesn't bless you guys at all. It's, it's a hindrance and a hurt for you. He constantly said to them, you missed the point. You missed the point of the law. Jesus said to, him, to them, you are men who honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. He said to them, you are whitewashed tombs. The outside looks good, but the inside is nothing but a bunch of dead men's bones. Jesus said, God looks on the heart, doesn't look on the externals. And, and so Jesus made it clear, guys, that, that what God's looking for is obedience, and he's looking for a righteousness that is, is coming from our heart, and not just this external activity that we do. It's not just that we keep a rule, it's something that's flowing from who we are on the inside. And it could be that what Jesus is saying when he said to his followers, and picture him sitting on the hill, and he's saying to his followers, unless your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees, he could have been saying, unless your righteousness is coming from your heart rather than your just rule keeping, you're not going to see God. You're going to miss God. Because what God desires at your, at your core is he desires for your heart to love him. You know, this morning in, uh, in Sunday school, we, we were talking about uh, the tenants. And uh, you remember, th- this really impacted me, by the way. At the very end of the parable, Jesus said that the, the stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. You remember that? And then Jesus says two things. He said, if you stumble over that stone, it's going to break you. He said, but if that stone falls on you, it's going to crush you to pieces. And here's what I think Jesus meant by that. I think he meant that if you stumble over Christ, Christ is not moved. There is no other way. There is no other name, as Peter said, given under, under heaven by which men must be saved. It's Jesus and Jesus only. He's not going to be moved. You're not going to, there's no other way. If you stumble over him, it's going to break you. But the second thing when he says, but if the stone falls on you, it's going to crush you to pieces. I think he's talking about, I think he's talking about the very end of judgment of God, right? And if Jesus falls on you, at the end, he's going to crush you to pieces. Now that's scary. And you know, that ought, that, ought to, that, ought to, that ought to cause you to just take note. But you know what? God doesn't want you. Here's what, this is what occurred to me. God doesn't want you to follow him out of fear. Here's what God wants. God wants you to fear him, but recognize his love and follow him because in his great love, the stone crushed Jesus and not us. Right? The stone, Jesus said, if the stone falls on you and crushes you, well, it's going to grind you to dust. Well, the stone fell on Jesus. I mean, Jesus bore the wrath and the holiness of God against our sin. Jesus bore it. It crushed him. And, and so God wants you motivated to do the things that, that he's challenging us to do here this morning. He wants you to obey him and follow his moral character, not because you're fearing that the stone's going to crush you, but because you recognize that Jesus crushed himself for you. And so your love for him motivates you 
to be who you are. It's the love of God that motivates us, the Apostle Paul said. All right, so that's the first way you could have understood what Jesus meant when he said, unless you surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. But here's the second, and, and, and this is so important that you understand, if, even if this isn't what Jesus exactly meant. Jesus could have meant that unless our ultimate righteousness is the imputed righteousness of God and not the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, we will not see God. Now, folks, listen, that's the gospel that we speak week after week after week. And I know maybe you're tired of hearing it, but this is the good news. The good news is, and I just, I just gave you the good news. The stone of God crushed Jesus to, to dust so that we could be forgiven, right? And so it could be that Jesus is saying, as long as you try to make your own righteousness by living by God's moral commands, or in their case, because they're still under the first covenant, living by the, by the ceremonial law of God, as long as long as you're trying to make your righteousness, you will not see God. But the day that you, by faith, receive the imputed righteousness of Christ, the, the given righteousness of Christ, the day by faith that you receive it, you will see God. If you continue to hold out that your righteousness somehow is going to make you acceptable to God, you'll never see God. But if, if you are willing to, by faith, trust the righteousness of God and say, God, I'm quit. I'm, I'm not going to make my own righteousness. I'm going to receive your righteousness. Listen to what the Bible says. Without faith, we cannot please God. You can't be righteous to please God without faith. It says that the righteous shall live by faith. This is Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. Jesus may have been reminding them, and he's definitely reminding us today, that true righteousness isn't in you trying to live by God's moral command. Should you? Should we? Absolutely. You know, absolutely. Listen, folks, there's, there's, you know, we talk about grace and the pendulum, I fear, has moved over here somehow. And, and so we no longer talk about obedience to God. Jesus is saying, I want you to obey my character. All of you, listen, Jesus wants us to be obedient to his character, to who he is. He calls us to that. We're, you know, we, we should not say like, like people I've heard just recently. I told you this story recently about someone telling me that it doesn't matter whether they live at all by the righteousness of God. They, they, they don't, the righteousness of God, it, you know, God does not call them to live the righteousness. As long as they believe that Jesus died for them, whether they want to live or try to live or whatever. I'm telling you, folks, that is not what Jesus is calling us to. But if you begin to embrace this idea that somehow by living the righteousness of God, you, 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 you make yourself acceptable to God, you'll never, ever, ever see God. You won't. Because righteousness is given to us by faith in Christ. So it could be that Jesus, when he says what he said, he could be saying, hey, your righteousness has to come from your heart. Or he could be saying the righteousness that you need is the righteousness that's given to you by God through faith. Today, God wants to give you his true righteousness. And you know, somebody here this morning may not have ever received God's true righteousness. Maybe you have never come to a place where you even recognize that, that you can't be righteous, that you can't somehow live up to God's righteous standard like Jesus did. But I want to just invite you this morning to, by faith, to receive the righteousness of God, which is in Christ. You said, Jim, I don't know how to do that. Sure, sure, it's simple. It's just in your heart saying to God, God, I, I really, 
I, I, I understand I'm not righteous. I understand that, that Christ is my righteousness. I want to receive Christ as my Savior and my Lord. You, in your heart, you say, well, give me the words. No, you don't need the words. You just cry out in your heart to God and receive the Lord Jesus. Let's, let's, let's take a moment. Would you bow your head with me just for a moment? And, um, and so I just want to invite you. With, you know, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, and so it's just you and God in that moment in that chair where you're seated. And, you know, if you have been imputed with the righteousness of Christ, then why don't you just say thank you? Right in your heart right there, just thank the Lord for his righteousness to you. Maybe you're sitting there and, and, and you've never been given the righteousness of God because by faith you've never trusted in Christ. I invite you right now in your chair, right there, just to talk to God and say, God, I want to receive the righteousness of Christ. Look up at me again. Alexander the Great was engaged in a series of battles. I know you've heard this story before, but I'm going to tell it again at the end. And he was engaged in a series of battles, and in one of the battles, one of the soldiers ran away in cowardice, and he was later brought before Alexander the Great for questioning. And Alexander asked the man, he said, what is your name? And the, and the man just kind of mumbled it under his breath, and Alexander, a little bit impatient, irritated, said, what is your name? And the man who was cowardly replied, Alexander. And Alexander paused for a moment, and then he said to the man pretty sternly, he said, either change your behavior or change your name. You know, some of us bear the name of Jesus. We claim to be his followers, but we're not following very well. We're somehow believing that Jesus came to abolish his character, his character laws, the things that he said that flowed from his nature, and he did not. And I really want to challenge all of us this morning, if that's you, if you've been taking license with the grace of God, then this is a challenge for you. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know, do you not know that Christ died for you? So believer, here's my challenge to those of us that already bear the name of Jesus. I I believe that what Jesus was trying to say to his followers that day and to us today is this. I revere the word of God. I haven't dismissed the word of God. I fulfilled it. And you know what? If you don't obey the word of God, if you don't follow my character, then, then you'll be least in the kingdom of God. And if you lead people to disobey my word, you're going to be least in the kingdom of God. But if you'll follow my will, do my word, you'll be great in the kingdom of God. So follow my will. Unless your righteousness is a righteousness that comes from your heart, and unless your ultimate righteousness isn't isn't dependent on what I just said in point two, as as long as you somehow don't confuse these issues... Your righteousness is Christ. It'll always be and only be Christ. Unless you, unless you trust in Christ like that, you'll never see God. So I want, to, I want you to bow your head again. And this is for those of us that follow Jesus. And I want to just do a moment of self-examination. And let me ask you, are you living 
in licentiousness? That means are you, are you living with this kind of license that grace gives you and you're not, you know, it, it doesn't matter. You're not fighting against sin. You're not trying to represent the character of God and Christ in your life. You say, hey, I'm saved. I'm saved by the imputed righteousness of God. It doesn't matter what I do. And you are not fighting against sin. I want to challenge you this morning to repent. You know what? I can't imagine that the Spirit of God, you know, we prayed this morning and I'm praying even now in my heart saying, God, Holy Spirit, fall on us. Bring conviction. You know, it's so easy for us to harden our hearts and so easy for us to take for granted the grace of God. So this morning, if that's you, if you've been taking for granted the grace of God, I ask you to repent. I I call you to repent. I call you to say, Lord, you know, I want your character to be deformed in me. I want to to turn from my sin. I want to follow you with all my heart. Listen, not so that you can somehow earn God's love, but because you do love God. Would you repent and turn from your sin? Holy Spirit, in the quietness of this moment, don't let us dismiss this as being for someone else. Lord, where, where do we take for granted the grace of God? Where, Lord, are we? Where have we said, Lord, your, your character doesn't matter and, and you're going to just live for ourselves, Lord? Convict us even at this moment. Lead us to repentance. Lord, your kindness leads us to repentance. It's your imputed righteousness, the kindness and the grace of God that leads us to want to follow you with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, to love you. Speak to us now, Spirit of God. Father, may the prayers that we've lifted before you this morning in the quietness of our hearts, may they be pleasing to you. May they speak of our desire to be holy, 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 even as you are holy. Lord, to, to walk worthy of the salvation that has been graciously given to us in Christ. Father, I pray that we would, we would leave here resolved that by your grace and by your spirit, Lord, you would, you would help us to turn from sin and to live, live out your character in our lives. Father, may people look at us and say, there, there goes a little Jesus. There goes someone who's just like Christ. Father, may that be true for every brother and sister here. Father, for men and women here this morning who have not come to that place of trusting in Christ, help them now, Spirit, to help them to put their trust in you, to receive graciously and freely the, the righteousness that comes from your hand by faith. Not by works, but by faith. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.